Good evening and good day everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of Ask Abhijit. I hope you are doing great on this fine Sunday evening or morning or day wherever you are. So before I begin, uh, I'd like to let you know that I have started uploading short clips on this channel. I had earlier made a separate channel for short clips, but I think no one was able to find that. So just for the sake of everyone's convenience, I am uploading them to this channel. I have made a separate playlist for the short clips and a separate playlist for these longer videos. So it's all well organized. So I hope that will offer you more convenience and you'll be able to find individual answers to questions that you're looking for. So I hope that helps and I'm going to continue uploading these clips on a regular basis. So today we're going to discuss Indian history. I think it's everyone's favorite topic and as always I have a bucket load of questions. So let's get right into it with question number 1. So this is by Harshit Pant. Do you think a full-blown civil war in 1947 would have been far better a far better option than the creation of Pakistan and the subsequent wars rifts riots etc that we have had that's a great question so how do we approach uh, this issue do we have any historical precedents so so think about it this way in the united states they have had a lot of presidents right and they don't have any official father of the nation kind of figure but the one person who comes closest to the father of the nation for the american people is abraham lincoln and he is also considered to be their greatest president he is the one person i mean us presidents have no have are known to have done all kinds of nasty things but among all of the us presidents he is the one person who is uh, reputed as a as a person of great integrity he is the one who comes closest to being a saint so i'm talking about abraham lincoln over here so in 1861 abraham lincoln was faced with the same question partition or civil war the same option that mohandas gandhi had in the 1940s and what option did uh, so what happened was that the uh, southern states in the united states has had seceded from the nation they had declared their independence so the united states uh, was was basically on the brink of a de facto partition that's what was happening so abraham lincoln had two options either allow the partition to happen allow the south to go its own way or go to war and have a civil war in the united states and what option did he take he chose to go to war the civil war happened under his watch correct and we know the history the the north one they were able to uh, retain a united united states they were uh, they were able to prevent the fragmentation of the nation and history would have been very different if abraham lincoln had allowed the country to be partitioned right so it is because of these actions and these decisions that he took and the decision to the very difficult decision to go to war it is because of all of these actions of his that he is regarded as the greatest president and he is regarded almost as a saint and in some way as a de facto father of the nation if anyone can come close to that title in the us now in india we consider mohandas gandhi to be the father of the nation but he is actually the father of pakistan he allowed the fragmentation of india he oversaw the fragmentation of india he kept saying that partition will happen over my dead body but 
he his words went in one direction his actions went in the opposite direction he facilitated the partition of india he did nothing to prevent the partition of india words and actions are meaningless it's only uh, words and uh, words are meaningless slogans are meaningless your actions are the only thing that matter and action can also be a lack of action in the as in the case of mohandas gandhi so we had the partition of india without consulting the people of india it was never put to a vote there was never a referendum there was no constitution of india at the time which would prefer, which would prevent a referendum so there would there, there was definitely the option of go, of having a referendum and asking the people of india whether they wanted whether they were willing to give up land their ancestral land which has been part of india for thousands of years so the democratic option was never exercised mohandas gandhi did not believe in democracy and the country was broken up and what happened next is we know what happened we have been at uh, at war with pakistan ever since it's sometimes an open war sometimes an undeclared war usually it's proxy warfare and terrorism from from pakistan side and india just sits there and takes it and now the war is, i mean the both sides both sides have nuclear weapons so it's a nuclear armed civil war essentially so this is a continuation of the civil war gandhi said that i want to prevent violence well to prevent violence in 47 he ensured there will be violence until 2020 and uh, and further so i think that there are times when there are just causes for warfare there are times when violence is called for in the mahabharat lord krishna tried his best to negotiate a settlement and prevent the war and when everything failed he exhorted arjuna and both and and his side to go to war this is a just war forget about uh, everything that happened in the past you have to do what you have to do just do your duty that's it so that's the thing i mean this this uh, this obsession with averting violence at all costs itself is a form of greater violence because it 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 prolongs the conflict over an extended period of time people who were not born in 90, 1947 are still bearing the brunt of mohandas gandhi's actions and the actions of other people in the in the so called indian independence movement the so called leaders so whom did these people really serve is the question we know that the british wanted to fragment india it was on their agenda jinnah was just a pawn and so was mohandas gandhi who was a larger pawn so the partition is what the british wanted they knew that they had to leave india anyway there was nothing left to extract from india india was destitute it was impoverished all the wealth had been extracted away the british did not want to govern a country that was in such shambles which they had brought into such shambles so they wanted an exit strategy and the exit strategy was to break india up into pieces and then play the pieces against one another one another so that they it will give them a geopolitical advantage in the gulf region in which they still had substantial interests because of oil and, and uh, because of the because we know that there was so much oil over there and they wanted to keep extracting that and keep benefiting from from that and they also had uh, substantial possessions in the middle east at the time so they wanted india and part india and pakistan to be part partitioned they wanted the pakistanis to be beholden to the british so that they would keep uh, playing a geopolitical role in britain's favor if india had been uh had been allowed to remain undivided it would have been antagonistic to the british most conceivably under a united leadership so they ensured that they transferred power to people of their choice uh 
India's independence, India's first prime minister was not elected. He was selected. Right? Mr. Uh, the great, great Shri Jawaharlal Nehru. So this is what happened. Independence was actually not... It was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. And, and so that's the answer. Would a full-blown civil war in 47 have been better? Conceivably, yes. Finish it off once and for all. Right? Whatever issues are left behind from the tumultuous history of partition uh, of, of the British occupation and the previous Turkic occupation, all that, deal with it once and for all and move on after that. Instead of prolonging it and, uh, and moving it forward slice by slice, cut by cut, blow by blow, as it's happening right now. So this matter is still unresolved. This so-called violence that Gandhi hoped to avert, it's still going on. It has taken the form of at least four major wars. And so much bloodshed has happened because of pro proxy warfare and whatnot. In the Pakistani occupation of Balochistan and Kashmir, parts of Kashmir and parts of, uh, of the Pashtun territories and Sindh, it's brutal, it's oppressive. And this is what the British engineered. And this is what the so-called great leaders of India's independence movement facilitated. So I think it would have been better for India to have dealt with the matter once and for all in 1947, instead of prolonging it unnecessarily and pointlessly like it's been done right now. Good question, sir. Okay, Yashwardhan asks, please tell us about the Kalash people of Kafiristan or so-called Nuristan, their culture and their heroic resistance. So let me show you who this Kalash people are. The Kalash people, they uh one second. One second. <clears throat> Let me pull up the particular web page so that I can share it with you. Okay, so this is the Google search for the Kalash people. The Kalash people are an ancient indigenous people of northwestern India, which is present-day northwestern Pakistan and parts of Afghanistan. The region of Pakistan is called Chitral. It is west of Gilgit-Baltistan. Pakistan occupied Gilgit-Baltistan. And the region of Afghanistan is present-day Nuristan. They call it Nuristan now. It was earlier called Kafiristan because these people held on to their ancient beliefs. And when it was sanitized and uh, the ancient beliefs were stamped out, it was called Nuristan, the land of light. So these are the people of, of uh, the Kalash people. As you can see, they look mostly, uh, they mo look more like Europeans in some way. You know, they have a European kind of appearance, and somehow all most of the images are of are of uh, are of women, females, and they have very nice, interesting dresses and all. These are clearly non-Muslims. These people practice a very ancient form of Hinduism. It's almost like a Rig Vedic form of Hinduism. Very, very ancient. And uh, so these are the people, they are, they're a very small group in this region. It is, it is a bunch of like about three or four valleys in the high mountains in this region. And because they are so isolated, that's why they have been able to, uh, to escape the, the brutality of uh, the foreign occupation. And they have been able to thus far, to some extent, preserve the culture. Uh, they, they basically were massacred in, in Afghanistan. And Kafiristan was turned into Nuristan, which means they were all converted by force, whoever survived. And now the same thing is happening in Chitral in Pakistan. So these Taliban is people, they are, they are basically 
converting them by force so these are the ancient people or uh, they who who are these people basically so their genetic if you their dna has been analyzed so what is found is that their patrilineal dna lineages are all uh, of indian uh, subcontinent origin r1a etc these are all indian lineages they are mostly found in extremely high proportions and frequencies and diversity in the indian subcontinent but the matrilineal lineages seem to be of western eurasian origin so it looks like their ancestral maternal populations were possibly of western eurasian origin so it's a very interesting uh, mixture of genetics over here so the matrilineal lineages are of western Eura- eurasian origin to to a large extent not fully and the patrilineal lineages are indian and the culture is in is an ancient form of hinduism so it's clear that they have been isolated and they have been practicing this this culture for a very long time for several thousand years uh, some of them nowadays believe that they are the descendants of uh, greek soldiers of alexander etc uh, dna analysis so, shows that this is just a myth it's just a belief there is no dna evidence that uh, in any way bears that out so these are essentially an ancient indian group with some of, of basically female foreign lineages western eurasian lineages that also in antiquity might have been indian in origin because as you know uh, indians have been getting going go, going westwards out of india for nearly 10000 years so it's a very interesting population they still to some extent uh, practice their original culture their indigenous culture but uh, in recent times in the past 2 or 3 decades the, the forced conversions have been intensifying the the frequency is increasing and it looks like this beautiful ancient culture may not last for a very long time so that is the truth about the kalash people that's who they are it's a it's a sad story it's a tragic story uh it looks like they may soon get assimilated into the mainstream pakistani population and culture i hope that doesn't happen i hope that uh, they're able to continue i mean the world is beautiful when there's so much diversity a monoculture is dull boring and insipid you want diversity of cultures and traditions and beliefs and that's what makes the world interesting you go to a new place there's something new to see every time instead of seeing the same old same old everywhere so i hope that this very interesting and very beautiful ancient culture survives i hope it is preserved but the future doesn't look that great for them so that's who the kalash people are they are an ancient indo well indo european people mostly of indian origin but their matrilineal lineages seem to be of western eurasian origin which is very interesting there's a, there's a, there's a story behind that which has not yet been discovered so there's uh, there's more to there's more to know in the case of these people Okay Akash asks uh, what are some overlooked facts about the life of Ashok is his conversion to buddhism overrated okay that's an interesting question so ashok the great we are taught that ashok was this great great king he is he is given this title of the great uh, the third mauryan uh, emperor the great conqueror of kalinga etc the great pacifist who destroyed kalinga and killed so many people and then was overcome with remorse because his hinduism made him kill so many people and that's why he converted to buddhism and became a saint 
and then he spread all these inscriptions throughout uh, uh, the the length the length and the breadth of india saying that i am a great man and i am, i believe in buddhism and i have i i believe in pacifism and all that and the inscriptions are found throughout india even afghanistan pakistan present day right so that's the story that's the story that our historians have been telling us that he rejected hinduism and converted to buddhism after he destroyed kalinga and uh, saw the slaughter which he attributed to hinduism what is the truth well firstly there is zero evidence that he see first of all there's no conversion to hinduism or buddhism if you start practicing buddhist uh, philosophy uh, and and practices in daily life you are a buddhist there's no conversion process right you're not dunked into a into a tub of water or anything to to be converted there's no conversion so the thing is ashok is known to have embraced the precepts of buddhism at some point in his life and there is zero factual evidence textual evidence or any evidence that this happened after the kalinga war it is actually most likely from the evidence that we have from all the evidence that the so called indian historians present the same evidence actually points to the fact that he embraced the tenets of buddhism before the so called uh, kalinga war happened right that's point number 1 so the the overwhelming evidence tells us that he became a practicing buddhist he became he started he embraced both the dharma before the kalinga war itself and what we know about ashok's uh, uh, the beginnings of his life so he was the uh, he was one of the sons of bindusar bindusar was a second mauryan ambassador uh, sorry mauryan emperor Bindusar was the son of Chandragupta Maurya the first Mauryan emperor and uh, the crown prince during Ashok's time was his half brother another son of Bindusar with a different wife now this half brother was in the northwest of india the boundaries the western boundaries of afghanistan fighting off some invaders greeks or scythians or whatever and that's when bindusar happened to die so the crown prince rushed back to patliputra which was the then present the then capital of the of india and he found that his half brother ashok had taken over the throne and ashok had this half brother killed his own half brother he had him killed he killed many of his other uh, siblings to consolidate his uh, grip on the throne it's almost like an ottoman slaughter in which the when an ottoman sultan would be enthroned he would immediately on the same day kill all of his brothers and half brothers to ensure that there is no threat to his crown so that's the kind of slaughter ashok perpetrated it is recorded that he had about 99 of his siblings killed brothers half brothers etc i think he spared only one of his brothers right and it seems that uh, so at the time india was a very eclectic culture there were so many different uh, paths of dharma different schools of thought you had the ajivikas you had the jains you had the bodh the, the dharma you had the mainstream uh, forms of uh, dharma which we now call hinduism and we had different philosophies and and paths the charvakas were present and many others right so it seems that when ashok was consolidating his his uh, grip on the throne the jainas and the ajivikas who may have had ties with other family members of his who he killed they kind of resisted what he was doing and therefore he embarked upon a vicious persecution of the jaina and the ajivika 
people, the people who followed those philosophical paths of, of Dharma, of Hinduism, right? So that's why he went on this rampage. It seems that he had many thousands of Ajivikas killed. He even persecuted the Jains. And this is not religious persecution. This is because these people had opposed uh, him coming to the throne in the manner that he did. So this is a form of persecution. Nowadays, the Marxist historians call this religious persecution because at the time, Ashok was a Hindu. But at the time, he had already embraced the tenets of Buddhism, by the way. So he did all of this while being a Buddhist. All right. And he went to war with Kalinga. He invaded Kalinga and wiped basically the entire Kalinga army out as a Buddhist. At least 100,000, 1 lakh Kalingan soldiers were massacred in that in that battle, which was a rout. And at least 1.5 lakh uh, prisoners were taken. So it seemed that Kalinga at the time was actually a vassal state or a province of the Mauryan Empire. I mean, the Mauryan Empire was so large and it was an expansionist empire. It went beyond present-day India, way beyond present-day India. So it is inconceivable that Kalinga right next door to Patliputra would have been an independent state. It would not have been allowed to be so. So Kalinga at the time was most likely a vassal state or a province of the Mauryan Empire. And maybe when Ashok came to power and in the way he, he did, maybe they tried to rebel against him or they opposed him. And maybe that's why he went to war with Kalinga. We don't know who was the king of Kalinga at the time. I still haven't been able to find the name of the, of the king, but I'll try and do that. So basically, the truth is that he was a vicious and very cruel person. Ashok is, he was known as Chanda Ashok, means a really evil Ashok, right? So he he is exactly the opposite of how he is portrayed. His portrayed is a pacifist and, and a saintly person. He was a vicious mass murderer. That's what he was. And he put up all these uh, pillars and inscriptions talking about pacifism, but he did not put any pillar advocating passive pacifism in the region of Kalinga or Patliputra. The pacifistic pillars and all uh, inscriptions were put in the far west of India, in present-day Afghanistan, etc. So that's the kind of person he was. It was just a political statement. Politicians say all kinds of things to to appear nice. And that's precisely what Ashok was doing. So firstly, he was not a Hindu, so-called Hindu, when he went to war with Kalinga. He was already a practicing Buddhist. And secondly, he was not a pacifist. He was one of the most vicious kings of India. So everything we know, we have been everything we have been taught about him is a lie. So this is the NCERT textbooks at work. It is only after the uh, Indian independence when, uh, well, when a certain political ideology was adopted in India and a certain uh, there was this desire to downplay Hinduism and uh, you know and uh, show that other faiths are better, etc. So that's when all these stories were concocted and placed in our textbooks, and that's what we have been learning so far. Even I. For most of my life, believed that Ashok was the great guy. You know, he he came to power and he went to war and then he had this change of heart and became a Buddhist. Buddham Sarnam Gachami, Dhammam Sarnam Gachami, and that's the story. The truth is very different. He was a practicing Buddhist while he did all this. So, twist in the tale, my friends. All right, this is a long question by Pritish Pai. Was it a good thing that India was colonized by the British? My arguments uh, 
British were less brutal, marginally less brutal than Spanish or Belgians. Being a colony saved us from being a direct rival of other powers. Being in the British kept us in the low profile. A strong India would have kept uh, created a separate pole to crush this non-Vedic civilizations would have, etc. And our colonial legacy, the English language is a blessing in disguise as it is the global language of technology and culture. This may prove to be our greatest strength in exporting our culture to the rest of the world. So, Pritish, I I, I respect what you say. This is what many, many people believe. That's what many people I know believe this. You know, so I, I have a different viewpoint. So, let me... Uh, invite you to understand that. Let me offer my viewpoint to this. I disagree with uh, the uh, arguments that you have presented. So let me explain why I disagree. So um, see, all colonizers are brutal, whether it's the Spanish or the Belgians or the British. I mean, the British killed more than a hundred million Indians in artificially engineered famines. I don't think the Spanish have been that brutal anywhere. I don't think the Belgians have been that brutal. They killed about 10 million people in the Congo in about uh, a few uh, few decades. But the the way the British killed so many Indians in artificially engineered famines and these this this figure of 10 million it's just basically British figures. The actual figures may have been much much higher. So people say that uh, they don't believe when I say that the British killed 10 million people. So let me let me just briefly show you a timeline of famines in India. This is from Wikipedia. First of all, please understand that I do not support Wikipedia. I don't advocate Wikipedia as a reliable source. Wikipedia is very problematic. I'm just showing it in Wikipedia for the sake of uh, convenience and time. So you can see how many famines were there in India. 1979, 2 to 10 million. 1783, 11 million. 11 here. 1 here. 2 million here. 1 million here. 1.5 million here. Uh, something else here, five and a half million here, five million here, etc. 4.5 million there, 1.5 million here, and that's just a few. And these are all grossly underestimated figures. They don't, first of all, include the numbers who died from epidemics because of, of the malnutrition and all that. And these numbers are grossly under, underestimated because these are British figures. You cannot rely on British figures. You cannot rely on the figures given you given to you by your occupiers. Okay, so they killed at least 100 million people just by starving them to death, slowly, systematically, bureaucratically. And they killed more than 10 million people in the immediate aftermath of 1857, the first war of independence. Their brutality was unmatched and unparalleled. Okay, so we can't say that the British were less brutal marginally or otherwise than any other occupier, than any other colonialist. All colonialists are the same. They... They, they don't care about anyone's human rights. So that's the first thing. A strong India India would have created a separate pole. A strong India is what is required. If you are weak, you're invisible, but that's not good, right? If you're strong, you will have enemies. That's the that's That comes with the territory of being strong. We must be strong. If you're strong, you will have enemies and you need to know how to deal with that. That is called being strong. If you are economically powerful, but you don't have a military, then you are not strong and you're inviting big, big trouble. So it is for a country, a civilization of India's size and magnitudes, it is imperative, it is essential, it is, I mean, you have to be strong, okay? There, there, there is no other alternative to being strong. India has to be strong. 
separate pole, crush this non-Vedic civilizations. If you're strong enough, no one can crush you. So once again, I can't agree with that. Our colonial legacy, India's... Uh, the English language is a blessing in disguise. We will export Indian culture, Sanskrit <laughs> via English. So, look, I'm not trying to make fun of you or to uh, or that, you know. My point is that, okay, let, let me show you some, some data, right? Uh, see, if, if English is such a big advantage, then why do facts bear something else out? So, let me show you some, some statistics, right? Okay, let me get rid of the question. So these are the statistics of the top 10 countries in the world by nominal GDP. These are the top, top 10 largest economies in the world. The United States, China, Japan, Germany, India, UK, France, Italy, Brazil, Canada. Out of this, the United States, the UK and Canada are English-speaking countries. Look at the other countries. China. They don't use the English language. They, their education system is in Chinese. Japan, the world's most technologically advanced country, doesn't use English. It offers education only in Japanese. The Japanese language has not prevented them from becoming the number one technologically advanced nation in the world. Germany, one of the most industrialized nations and one of the most technologically advanced nations, again, they don't use English. They use the German language in education and in, and in everything. France, I mean, come on, the French will never ever use English. It did not prevent them from building this brilliant uh, technology, the Rafale planes, the nuclear reactors, and, and much more technology, right? Italy doesn't use English. Once again, technologically advanced. Brazil, not so advanced, but still has some self-respect, doesn't use English. And look at, of all these countries, the GDP per capita, whose is the lowest? It is India, with its English advantage whose gdp per capita is the lowest and and it doesn't this this list doesn't even include russia which is so advanced in the in terms of technology and science they don't use english they use russian so does english confer any kind of advantage that's a myth and and about english being a language of culture the english language uh, my friends uh, does not even have its own script the English language does not even have its own written script, its own alphabet. It uses the Latin script. Do you realize that? The script, the, the alphabet that's used to write the English language is a foreign alphabet. It's the Latin alphabet. And it's, it's, the, it's the one alphabet that's been imposed upon most of Europe. So that's the, uh, that's the kind of poverty that you find in the English language. It's not in any way a superior language, it's an inferior language. Sanskrit is the most advanced language. Sanskrit is the language of culture. Okay. And it's also the language of technology. India would never have, I mean, India did not have English in the Harappan era. And yet it was the most technologically and scientifically advanced civilization in the history of humanity at the time. Our ancient mathematicians, our ancient scientists, Brahmagupta, Aryabhat, Arya uh, Madhava of Sangramagam, and so many more. Did they use English to develop uh, differential calculus, integral calculus, uh, trigonometry, and much more? Did they use English to develop astronomy and all the sciences and all the technology? It was all done with Sanskrit. So we need to get over this mental colonization that all of us have, including me too. I'm talking to you in English. So we need to find ways of getting over this. 
English does not provide us with any advantage. It actually hampers us. It keeps us back. We are forced to converse in English right now because half the country can't even speak Hindi. And Hindi is something I'll come to later on in this program. So my respectful uh, invitation to everyone is please try and think differently. English does not provide any advantage. The British colonialism was in no way great for us or good for us. They, they did not come here to, to uplift us from our, from, our, from our backwardness. We were not backward when they came here. We were backward when they left. We were impoverished and destroyed as a nation when they left. They came here because there was something to take from here. Right? So, and, and the British occupation of India. I mean, people say that the British gave us so much. They gave us so much. They gave us railways for the sake of the gods. Railways and ports and roads and infrastructure and wonderful buildings. And the judiciary for good, for good God. All of that. Why did they create the railways? The railways were the infrastructure of occupation and extraction. They built railways so that they could extract wealth out of India. They bought, built ports so that they could have ships come and dock over here, take goods from the railways and get out and take away our wealth. And these ports and roads and railways were built with Indian money using Indian labor. It was built with wealth extracted out of India. It was built with slave labor taken from Indians. Right? Please, please try and see things in the proper context. The judiciary they created was basically for their own benefit. It treated Indians like second-class citizens. Indians did not get the same treatment as the British in the in the British judiciary. And it's interesting to note that it is the same judiciary that's still there today. Nothing has changed in the structure and the functioning. Um, of the judiciary, in the architecture, internal architecture of the judiciary. It's the same institution. It's the same institutions that we are still carrying forward today. It's, a it's, it's the same laws that the British wrote that are still uh, ruling us. So India needs to decolonize. It, it's high time India decolonizes and we cannot decolonize unless we realize how deeply colonized we are. So I urge you, I invite you all to think deeply about this and try and try and figure out the different ways in which we are colonized because india is still a very much a colonized country so first we have to realize it if you want to break free from those self-imposed shackles aditya asks why is the bengal famine a massacre done by the british not much talked about while the German concentration camps are criticized like anything. First of all, uh, if the Germans had won, there would have been no talk of the concentration camps. They would never have existed. Secondly, why are the German concentration camps, the Nazi concentration camps, so criticized so much? Because the Americans who defeated the Germans uh, made sure this is widely publicized so that it gave them the moral superiority over the Germans because the Americans also did terrible war crimes during the Second World War. I mean, war is a time in which you do terrible acts. And when you bombard civilian populations, that's a war crime. The Americans did plenty of that. The firebombing of Dresden, good God, it was an atrocity. Anyhow, the Americans ensured, um, the Americans and the British and the French, all the allies, they ensured that this gets a great deal of 
coverage in the press and the media everywhere. And rightfully so, the Germans were monsters for what they did, for the way they treated the, the, the Romani and the Jewish people. Terrible, terrible. I mean, they tried to wipe these people out fr from, from existence, from the face of the earth. So it is very rightfully criticized and it, the, the Nazis are very rightfully vilified for what they did. They were absolute monsters and uh, that is something that can never be for forgotten or forgiven. Now, why are the even larger massacres done by the British not talked about? Like I sh showed you just now, there was famine after famine. These were all artificially engineered famines. And at least a million, a hundred million Indians, that's 10 crores, at least at the very, very minimum, at a conservative estimate, were killed by the British in these artificial famines. This is a... This is at least an order of magnitude worse than what the Germans did. This is a war. This is a crime against humanity by any measure, by 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 any definition, and still we don't talk about it. And and the latest, the last famine they did before the left was the uh, Great Bengal famine, in which they say about a million and a half people died. I think the actual figure is near near six or seven or ten million. But the but we will use the official British figures. To, to count it. The actual number, I think, is near 10 million. That's how many Bengalis died. Winston Churchill deliberately starved the Bengalis. All, I mean, all the resources were available, food, grains, everything. He had them shipped off to Europe to aid the, to supposedly aid the war effort, the Second World War effort, because the, the Greeks and other people were fighting and the Indians were just sitting around. So he deliberately starved the Bengalis and our great uh, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi did not say a word about it. So the point is, the British atrocities, these crimes against humanities are not talked about because A, our historians don't talk about it, B, our media doesn't talk about it, and C, because we are not aware of it. So unless we start talking about this in the open, in public, unless we start writing about it, unless our media and other media channels etc. start talking about it unless our historians publish books about this and unless we make a big deal out of it unless we publicize this vigorously this will not be talked about the west knows about what it's done the atrocities and and crimes of the west are unimaginable unimaginable what they did in africa what they did in north america what they did in south america and what they did in, in india and other parts of asia I mean, if you put, the, if you add up the death toll, it will exceed a billion. And you think it's ridiculous? No, it did not happen in one week or one year. It happened over centuries. So over centuries, if you, if you add up the death toll, it will easily exceed a billion humans. So this is the price that colonialism extracted from humanity. And this squarely lies on the West. That's what they did to the, to the rest of the world. So they know what they have done. And it is best for them that these things remain suppressed. So they will never talk about it. Their historians won't speak about it. If if nowadays, if there is this uh, change, this woke culture coming in, then some aspects may be, may be discussed briefly, but they will not make a big hue and cry about it. So it is for us to start discuss discussing these things. It is for us to start writing about these things. It is for our historians. If new Historians were to emerge to write about this because the existing historians are all stooges of colonialism. So that's the reason why these uh, these incredible crimes against humanity are not spoken about.
Abhishek asks, uh, did ancient Hindus eat non-vegetarian food? Did they eat meat? If no, when did we start eating it, etc. Ancient, th- th- there is nothing against Hinduism that says that you cannot eat meat. It does. We do have the uh, principle that ahimsa parmo dharma, which means that ahimsa is the is the highest morality. So, which means that it, in an ideal situation, you should not kill, you should not eat meat, etc. But in the real world, you are permitted to eat meat, especially the people who went to war in the in, in historical times, even today, the so-called uh, warrior people. They they always eat meat, right? They have always been known to eat meat. We have this episode in the Ramayana. One of the we have two epics: the Ramayana and the Mahabharat. The Ramayana is much more ancient than the Mahabharat. It is closer to the time of the Vedas than the Mahabharat is. So, in the Ramayana, we have this very clear episode in which uh, Lord Rama sh- uh, shoots a deer. So, it's not just for the skin. I mean, you don't waste what you what you kill. You have to eat it too. So, it's clear that. He, that Lord Ram was a warrior. He was a uh, so-called, we call them Kshatriyas, right? The warriors. So he was a warrior and he was definitely one someone who ate meat. Kshatriyas typically have always had the tradition of, of uh, eating meat because warriors need to have stronger bodies. You need protein. You do get protein from plant sources, but it's much more readily available if you eat meat on a regular basis. So meat eating was was definitely something that was not considered great, but it was not frowned upon that much. Even the great, um, uh, even uh, Siddhartha Gautam, the Lord Buddha, his last meal is known to have been a dish of most likely pork in the city of Kushinagar in uh, north in in uh, in UP or Bihar somewhere thereabouts. That was his last meal. It was it was a dish of pork. So Indians have always eaten meat. It has always been regarded to be the highest morality not to eat meat. But that's what people who are not engaged in martial professions, that's what they would do. They would refrain from eating meat. But warriors and people in uh, laborious professions, etc., usually did eat meat. So there is no such uh, tradition that ancient Hindus did not eat meat at all. That's not the case. Chetan asks, what lies below the Taj Mahal and why have the doors been closed by wall and does the Taj Mahal have a secret way to the Red Fort, which is two kilometers from there? So I saw a video by Praveen Mohan in which he shows that there is a portion of the Taj Mahal below the main uh, building, which has been locked off by the ASI. And there is clearly a passageway inside. And I think it, it... it stretches back a considerable distance, maybe two or three kilometers. So there are definitely aspects aspects of this building that have been hidden off, that have been cut off from the people. There are that people are not allowed to investigate. So so there is definitely a mystery there, and there is something that the ASI, the Archaeological Survey of India, is hiding. There is something they know, and there is something they don't want the people of India to know about it. So I. Personally, haven't been there. I've never had any interest in that in that structure, and I have not visited it. I have not seen it, so I cannot personally answer what is there. What I can say is that there is something hidden there, and there is something being deliberately hidden by the ASI. So I think it is time for see the ASI is an institution, an organization that is supposed to safeguard the country's heritage on our behalf. It is our heritage. They don't own the heritage. 
they don't own the Taj Mahal. They are simply in charge of safeguarding it and preserving it and other, other monuments on the behalf of the people of India. So the people of India are the true, true custodians of this heritage. But the ASI is simply a public servant, a public service. It is doing this work on our behalf. They cannot cordon off areas of ancient monuments and try to keep information away from us. It is time the ASI is reformed. I think the ASI should actually be disbanded. It is a corrupt and useless organization. And a new body of professional archaeologists need, needs to be put in place instead of the in, in place of the ASI. The ASI has been overseeing the wholesale loot and destruction of India's heritage. You hear stories in the media, you see news reports every week of idols being stolen from temples, idols being uh, turning up in the West. It's a wholesale pillage that's been going on since colonial times. The ASI is a colonial institution, right? It was a it was started by the British. It was started to document India's ancient priceless heritage. And the ASI facilitated the transfer of ancient Indian uh, artwork and sculptures and priceless items to the West. If you see the museums of the UK, they are full of stolen Indian heritage. It was all facilitated by the ASI. And even today, the ASI is doing nothing more than that. They are either negligent in the duty and temples and, and other uh, monuments that are, that are under their jurisdiction are being pillaged openly and nothing is being done. But of course, they will preserve the Mughal monuments very well. And they will cordon off areas of the Taj Mahal and not allow the people to know what's there. So I think it's high time we either reform this useless organization or just get rid of it and replace it with a professional, competent body that actually serves the nation and not uh, doesn't serve some other agenda. So it's high time we do this. Okay, Om Dikshit asks, if Indians lived mostly topless in the ancient times due to hot weather conditions, so why do we have an episode of the Draupadi Vastraharan in Mahabharat? Okay. So yeah, from the evidence that we have in uh, paintings, in ancient carvings and sculptures of our ancestors, we see that both men and women were mostly topless in their daily lives. They would sometimes wear some light clothing on the upper half of the body, but mostly they were topless and there was nothing unusual about it. Today, it would be very unusual for either a male or a female to go out anywhere topless. It is not acceptable in today's society. In our ancient pre-invasion, pre-occupation society, it was perfectly normal. It was nothing unusual. So yes, I did say that to the most extent from the evidence we have, it appears that this was the case because of the climatic conditions. So the clothing they wore was suitable to the climate. But I never said that they were bottomless. I never said that they went around naked, right? So vastra can be something you wear on the bottom as well. Uh, uh, you know, so, so my point is that Draupadi Vastra Haran means she was wearing vastra. I'm not saying, I don't know what she was wearing. Maybe she was wearing a full dress or maybe only the bottom part or whatever. I don't know. I'm not, I cannot speculate. The point is she was wearing vastra. But vastra can be on the bottom part too, right? Vastra means clothing. So, this episode of Draupadi Vastraharan tells you that we, our ancestors, did wear clothing. It just doesn't mean they were completely naked. If they did not wear a top, it means that maybe most likely they wore something on the bottom part, something very ornate and and uh, good. So that's 
the reason why you had Draupadi Vastra Haran because people did wear Vastra is just that the top part was left mostly bare most times at most times okay Abraham asks due to colonization of India by and invasions by foreigners many facts about our Indian culture have been hidden from us yes and nowadays one of these topics which is quite controversial and deba debatable is homosexuality in India can you tell us about this? As many say, it's a thing brought into India by foreigners and some say that actually India was quite liberal about it and it was not considered taboo in Indian culture. So here's what we know. Homosexuality exists. A certain percentage of the population tends to be like that. So it is a natural thing. There's something unnatural about it. It's a small minority of the overall population, but it, it does exist. And during India's colonial time, during the Turkic occupation time as well, I am sure that homosexuality was uh, a crime. When the British came here and they created their laws, which India still follows, well, they, they criminalized homosexuality. And until just three or four years ago, that law was still in place. So that colonial law from the 19th century or thereabouts was enforced in India until two or three years ago or, or less than a decade ago. So homosexuality was criminalized in India during the Turkic era because of their laws, which we know very well, and the uh, European Christian morality, which came in with the British. So these Abrahamic moralities and, and cultures, they regard homosexuality as a great sin, and it is usually punishable by death. Now, in ancient India, we know that we had... See, if you look at the pre-invasion, the pre-occupation texts of India, which are extremely extensive and voluminous, we have extensive Indian literature that dates back thousands of years. So homosexuality is not mentioned in that. But it is also not mentioned that homosexuality should be criminalized or penalized in any way, which means that homosexuals would have existed and they were not really taken notice of or whatever. I mean, let it be. There was nothing written about them. So it was basically uh, from the evidence that we have, the evidence of absence, it looks like homosexuality was treated with basically indifference. It didn't matter. We do know that transsexuals have had a long history in India. Uh, in the Mahabharata, there was this uh, person called Shikhandi who was born a boy but was a girl or the other way around. I'm not really sure right now, but uh, it's one of the two things. So this was a transgender person, a great warrior, right? and a person of uh, great importance, of, of, of at least a, a certain significance in this great ancient war that happened in India. And this person was well respected, right? A trans, transgender person. So transgenders have been around for a long time and they have never been in any way marginalized or, or oppressed. In recent times, in the past thousand years or so, transgenders have been oppressed and marginalized. But today, at least if you will say that in Hinduism, it's not the case. Uh, in the Kumbh Mela, you have the Kinnar Akhada, who are given the same rights and same same honor as every other Akhada, right? So it's clear that in Indian culture, in the pre-invasion, pre-occupation uh, culture, there was nothing in of any kind against transsexuals, transgenders, or homosexuals. Because see, uh, we know now that Hinduism is greatly demonized nowadays. Historians and sociologists and Marxist authors, etc., they try and dig through Indian texts and find evidences of, of something that uh, is apparently bad today. 
and they then they shout about it from the rooftops and i guarantee that they have been trying to find something about uh, against homosexuals in in india's texts and they have found nothing so that tells you that homosexuals may have been treated with indifference in india but they were never oppressed in any way or any form whatsoever so so that is one thing which we can say for sure about indian culture that india was very liberal about sexuality first of all uh uh and and uh, i think homosexuality of any form is not mentioned at all in vatsyayana's kama sutra etc so india was very liberal about sexuality and homosexuality seems to have been treated with indifference but there is absolutely not one not the slightest shred of any evidence that homosexuals were oppressed or marginalized or penalized in any way whatsoever in ancient india in indian culture okay the mahabharat war happened to be a big event of killing just like a world war is there any sudden dip in population count some millennia ago good question right so this is this great war this epochal event that happened this apocalyptic war that happened in ancient india so is there any dip in population here's the thing this war happened on a battlefield called kurukshetra it's in haryana today it was fought between two armies and there were rules that both armies followed this was so basically the fighting started at at daybreak and it ended at sunset there was no fighting between daybreak, daybreak and sunset yes there were some crimes that the kauravas committed like killing the sons of the pandavas etc but overall this was a very well organized war it was fought within a, a framework of rules these rules were to the most part not broken and no non combatant was harmed in this war not one civilian was harmed in this war it was not a, a war that uh, that uh, destroyed cities and villages and towns and all that it was a war war that was localized to one battlefield only that was the agreement and that's how the entire 18 days of this war proceeded and not one bystander was killed you could stand outside the battlefield and watch the proceedings of the war as a civilian as a non combatant and nobody would would uh, harm you so that is the way indians used to go to war that's the kind of warfare you had you had ethics and morality of warfare and that is what our ancestors tried to use against the, the turkic invaders and that's why india got got basically subjugated because the turks had no ethics or morality of warfare the only objective was to win the only objective was victory so the moral of the story is you can fight in a civilized manner only when your opponent is equally civilized when your op- your when your opponent is not civilized when he does not recognize the ethics and morality morality of warfare that you do then you have to fight according to his terms so that is the 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 moral of that story but as far as the mahabharat goes there was no civilian casualties at all no civilian was harmed no town no village no city was destroyed it only happened on one battlefield and that's where the entire 18 days of the war uh unfolded so there is no dip of population at all not one civilian casualty that's the thing prabhav asks prabhav asks 
in the world history episode, you said the Turkic invasions and occupation of India resulted in 500 million deaths. But the historian K.S. Lal in one of his works estimated that 60 to 80 million people lost their lives due to wars, famines and massacres. This is slightly confusing. Can you please explain? All right. Good question. Good question. So the thing is, no, no historian has actually done a proper analysis of how many people died during the Turkic invasions. So any figures, any numbers that anybody, including me, gives are at best educated guesses. Right? So we know that the British occupied India for about two and a half centuries. Right? And we know that they killed at least 100 million Indians. At least. So in two centuries, let's let's make it easier to calculate. Two centuries, 100 million deaths. Just to keep it simple. Roughly. It means half a million people in... It means half a million people... Uh, Per, per per year, is it? 200 years, 100. So in one century, 50 million people. So every year it's 5 million people, uh, half a million. So if there is the death toll of half a million people per year, then in two centuries you will have 100 million deaths. Okay. So I think the Turks were much more brutal than the British. But even if we were to apply the same kind of mathematics to the Turkic occupation, and you had, let's say, five centuries, then that comes to at least 250 million deaths deaths by starvation. And we know that there were lots of famines during the Turkic times as well. And then you had the wholesale slaughters and massacres, etc. So I would actually give the figure of about about 1 million deaths per year of the Turkic occupation across the entire geography of India, which is an entire subcontinent. So that figure of 1 million deaths per year is actually quite conservative, given the brutality of the Turks and the the kind of uh, massacres that they have recorded. I mean, their historians and chroniclers have gleefully recorded the kind of atrocities they perpetrated. So if you give what, if you assume the figure of 1 million deaths per year, and they were in power for over five centuries, then it gives you a figure of 500 million. So this is an educated guess. It's an estimate. Nobody has tried to properly uh, try and reconstruct the events. But I think 500 million itself is a conservative estimate. I think there could have been more. And you would say that how is it possible 500 million? India's population was 300 million at a, at a given time. I am talking about the cumulative death toll of five centuries or more. Right? So even if one person die, 1 million people died per year, over 500, million year, uh, 500 years, you have 500 million deaths. So that is the kind of rough guesswork you have to do because there are no official figures available. But we know that this is the worst genocide ever perpetrated in the history of humanity. This is what we know. So that's how I arrived at this rough estimate of 500 million deaths. I think this is a conservative estimate. I think the actual number would exceed 500 million deaths over the entire period of the Turkic invasions and occupation of India, which initially started around 700 CE and continued until the 16th century and further. So I think 500 million is actually an underestimate. Okay, Aizen says, as a southern Indian, Hindi is an absolute alien language. There is a situation for a lot of people in many Indian states. 
However, Sanskrit is a language that exists and is part of the language and culture in every corner of India. The reason why the people of much of southern India can't understand Hindi is because Hindi is so Arabized and Urduized. The original Hindi language was Sanskritized and that is a language that is easily understandable to many people or most people in much of southern India. The Tamil language, this beautiful ancient language has a great deal of Sanskrit in it. Right? We know that. I have I've spoken about this so many times. Kannada has a great deal of Sanskrit. Telugu has a great deal of Sanskrit uh, vocabulary. Uh, Malayalam has a great deal of Sanskrit vocabulary. Every Indian language is infused with Sanskrit vocabulary. This is undeniable. And this is not some colonial oppression or some Sanskritization. It's just what happened over thousands of years of Indian history. The harmonious uh, intermingling of various languages. And it's the same culture and same civilization. So it's bound to happen. And the, the fact is that Sanskrit is not a dead language. You know, people tell you Sanskrit is a dead language. No, it's not. Latin is a dead language. Sanskrit is a living, breathing language. Let me illustrate this. The, the truth is that Sanskrit is part of every Indian language, to, even today. It's part of the vocabulary. And when you replace mundane words with Sanskrit words, it actually elevates the language. It elevates the discourse. So let me give you an example. Let's say I say a sentence in Hindi. Aaj subay mene ek, aaj subay mene ek uh, safed kutta dekha. Today morning I saw a white dog. Aaj subay mene ek safed kutta dekha. Now let's say I replace certain words with Sanskrit uh, with better Sanskrit terms. Then I can say aaj prathah mene ek shwet shwan dekha. So it doesn't break the language. You still understand what I'm saying. It elevates the quality of the discourse. It elevates the language. So Sanskrit is very much alive. You can do the same thing in any other Indian language. You can do it in Gujarati, in Marathi, in, in Kashmiri, in Assamese, in Uriya. I'm sure you can do the same in Tamil as well, in other, other southern Indian languages. So Sanskrit is very much a living, breathing part of our vocabulary. It actually elevates and civilizes our discourse when we use better Sanskrit terms. And if you do the same thing, with Latin in English or French, it's going to immediately break break the language. You won't understand what you what what you're saying. So let me illustrate that too. If I may be permitted to do that, let me go to Google Translate. So let me translate from English to Latin. Morning, white and dog. I'll translate to Latin. So morning is mane. White is album and dog is canis. So can I say that today, Mane, I saw an album canis? <laughs> you won't understand what I'm saying. It completely destroys the language. It's, it's no longer a coherent speech. The same thing happens in French. If you use these words in French, the French word for morning is matin, white is blanc, and dog is chien. If you use these three words instead of that, it breaks the language. You have no idea what the person is saying. That's why Latin is a dead language. You can't do the same thing with Latin that you can do with Sanskrit. 
So that tells you that Sanskrit is very much a part of our living, breathing languages. It's part of our daily life. It's part of our culture and our civilization. And the reason Hindi is not understood is is because it's been so badly Arabized and Urduized. If it is brought back to its roots, everyone will understand it. But it's better that Sanskrit should be the civilizational language, the one language that binds this ancient and great civilization together once again. So this is a great observation that I found. This is by Anmol Bhatia. There's no doubt that India and Persia are the same people. They used to have the same Vedic customs. But between Cyrus's and Darius's reign, it all changed. And the Asuras, Ahura Mazda, and the Devas, Devas evil, Ahura Mazda good, Devas evil. So we know became opposite in their culture with the, with the rise of Zoroaster. What's the reason for this sudden cultural shift? So like I have said, yes, very good observations, Anmol. So like I have said in previous episodes, the Persians are the Parshwa people. They are the descendants of the Parshwa clan of the Rig Vedic Indians. There was this great battle, the battle, battle of the Ten Kings. And a great deal of, a great many of these clans were exiled. They lost the battle. They were thrown out of India. They were exiled westwards and northwards. So the Parshwa people went and settled in present day Persia. The, the land Persia is derived from that word Parshwa. So like you say, there's no doubt that we are the same people. Uh, and these people were Hindus. I mean, if you call that religion and culture of that time Hinduism, then these original Persians were Hindus. And that, and then at some time, this change happened. It happened because of the rise of this, this one person, Zoroaster. His name was Zarathustra. Zarathustra. The word Ustra means camel in Sanskrit. And Zarath means either yellow or old. So Zarathustra means a guy who has either an old camel or a golden camel. Okay. So Zarathustra, um, he is the first known prophet of humanity. And Zoroastrianism is the first revealed religion. So he claimed that he had a revelation from the great god Ahura Mazda. And he revealed these this new religion, which was basically an inversion of Hinduism. So the Devas became evil. And the Asuras or Ahuras became good. So in Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism, the morality is inverted. The morality is the same, but the roles are inverted. So in Hinduism, the Asuras are considered to be somewhat evil, somewhat uh, on the the wrong side of good and evil. And the Devas are the ones who are virtuous. So in Zoroastrianism, they inverted this. So this was essentially a rebellion against the ancestral culture against the old Hindu uh, practices. So this is a genuine example of what a rebellion against Hinduism looks like. Buddhism is not a rebellion of any kind against Hinduism. Zoroastrianism is. So they inverted the roles of the Devas and the Asuras. So that's what happened. So this happened, we don't know exactly when Zarathustra was alive. We don't know when he was born. It was somewhere before 1000 BCE. Maybe at the very dawn of the Hakshamanish dynasty, the Achaemenid dynasty. And uh, Cyrus, Darius were all Zoroastrians. Zoroastrians. They wrote about in their inscriptions the greatness of Ahura Mazda, etc. So the reason for this cultural shift is the emergence of Zoroaster, of Zarathustra. And for some reason, his uh, teachings 
and preachings were for some reason adopted very widely. We don't know what happened. It's all lost in the myths of time. I think Zarathustra was born in Bahalika, Balkh, perhaps, present-day Afghanistan, that time Western India. So we don't know what caused this to be so quickly, widely adopted throughout the Parshwa region, but it happened and so the roles were inverted and that Zoroastrianism, even though it has the same traditions, the same language and the same origins as the other Vedic customs, it was actually an attempt, an act of rebelling against the old, against the old ancestral culture of the Parshwa people. So that's what we know about it. Uh, Zoroastrian, uh, Zoroastrian people today exist mostly in India, right? Some do live in Persia, but they are very badly uh, oppressed and marginalized. So they had to escape to India. So it was a long journey, a full circle. They came back to the land of their origin. And that's where these, the majority of Parsis or Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrians still live today. So it's an interesting uh, episode of our ancient shared history between India and Persia. Akash writes, while rereading the history of the Jats, I come across statements like the Jat people are considered as the merged descendants of Indo-Aryans, Indo-Scythian tribes of the region, merging to form the Jat people. They are known as Goths in Germany, which was a tribe that defeated the Romans. This is basically stating that Jats are Aryans and it's false. The Aryan migration theory is a sham. So basically what you're asking is what is the origin of the Jats and were they always in India? Excellent question. So let's start at the very beginning. At the very beginning, all the Rig Vedic clans were in India. Then you had the Battle of the Ten Kings in which the, the, the losing coalition, all of the clans were expelled out of India. They had to run for their lives. So they went westwards, they went northwards. They, and then the regions of Uttara Kuru and Uttara Madra were formed, which were named after Kuru and Madra regions of India which is uh, the Ganga-Yamuna region, which is Kuru, and the Madra, which is west of that. So Uttara Kuru and Uttara Madra were, were named after these ancestral regions of these exiled Rigvedic clans. And later on, these people, these exiled clans, they established great kingdoms in Central Asia. The whole of Central Asia was Indian. It was Indianized. They spoke Indian uh, Sanskrit-derived languages. And most likely, these are the ancestors of today's Europeans, the ones who spread westwards in great invasions. And these are also the ancestors of the Scythians and the Kushans, who were also basically... See, the Scythians are represented in artwork, modern artwork, as being fair-skinned, European-looking look, uh, skin, blonde-haired or red-haired, right? That's how they're presented in, in popular artwork. But when you find Scythian burials, you analyze the DNA, you can tell their skin tone, their hair color, etc. We know that they had light skin, but not white skin. So their skin tone would have been similar to mine. Okay. And they had dark hair and brown eyes. So they would look like me, I guess. See, so that's what a typical Scythian looked like. They were of Indian origin. Today they are called Iranian peoples, but the Iranians themselves are of Indian origin, FYI. So these Scythians, they roamed the whole of Central Asia, the great steppes of Central Asia, all the way from Eastern Europe, all the way into present-day Xinjiang, so-called Xinjiang, Xinjiang of China, where the Kushans 
or the Tokarians lived. So it was a great expanse across Eurasia. So these are Indian origin peoples. The Scythians were not one homogeneous people. They had their own clans and subdivisions. They may even have had a number of languages. And one of these Scythian clans was called the Masagate. The Greek historian Herodotus from the 5th century or 6th century BCE, he wrote about this clan called the Masagate. They are the Mahajats. Okay, so these are people who had gone out of India and they were they, their homeland was east of the Caspian Sea. So it was the region of uh, north of Iran and parts of uh, present-day Afghanistan. And they entered into conflict with the Achaemenid dynasty, the Hakshamanish dynasty of Iran. And they had a great queen called Tamri. In uh, Greek, they call her Tomiris. And she fought a great battle with the Persian king Kurush, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. It was a terrible battle, the worst, the most terrible battle the Greeks had ever seen. And she killed Cyrus the Great and took his he- took his head with her in retaliation for his killing her son. So these are the Masagate or the Mahajats, and they went westwards, and uh, they in in uh, in Europe they were called the the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. So these are the people who who actually sacked Rome at one time. So there is this ethnic and cultural continuum that connects Europe and and, uh, parts of Asia all the way up to India. And so these Masagate or Mahajats are connected to the Jat people of India. The Jat people in India are are spread across many states, mostly uh, to a significant extent in Punjab, Haryana, but also in Western UP, parts of Rajasthan, etc. It's a very large geographical extent. So the Masagate or the Mahajats, this Scythian clan or tribe were an extension of the Indian Jat people. It is not known whether they came into India and reunited with the Indian Jats or not, but it is the same people. And the same people, their descendants are still found in Europe. And there is a great similarity in names also of the Jat people and people in certain parts of Europe, especially Germany. Right. So I will uh, refer to you, uh, refer you to a very good article about the, about this topic. Let me share that on the screen. So here it is. The article is called Uttarakuru and the Juts. It's by Dr. Subhash Kak. I highly recommend you read this article. It gives a it gives a great deal of information about this very specific question. Very interesting article, and you should read more about Dr. S- by more articles by Dr. Kak, who is a wonderful scholar. So that uh, is the answer in brief to this question. It's a very long roundabout story, but the Jats are basically Indians and they are closely connected to the Mahajats or the Masagate clan of the Scythian people who were also an Indian people, Indian origin. And they are connected to the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and various Germanic people as well. So it's the same ethnicity and ancestry overall. Very interesting story. Okay, Minakshi asks, the Chola dynasty had a huge and powerful navy. Also, Indians were great seafarers and they 
predate the Maratha Empire by thousands of years? Absolutely right, yes. Then why is Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj called the father of the Indian Navy and not Rajendra Chola or people below him? Because titles do attract attention, which may motivate people to learn more about these lost legends. I think you've got a good point here. I think the reason why uh, the emperor, the great emperor Shivaji Maharaj is called the father of the Indian Navy is because he's the most recent great king of India, the most recent emperor who used naval power in military warfare and very effectively and, to, and with great success. So he's the latest and the most recent of our great kings and emperors who has done that. And that's why he is remembered as the father of the Indian Navy, even though today's Indian naval tradition is entirely colonial. It is not uh, from uh, the time of the Marathas. Even then, we remember the great Shivaji Maharaj as the father of the Indian Navy. But like you said, the Cholas, Rajendra Chola, Rajaraj Chola, they had an even bigger navy they conquered enormous maritime empires. They conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia with their naval power. So they must have had a formidable navy, the greatest navy of its time. So I would say that you have a good point here. And I think we should appoint Sri Rajendra Chola as the grandfather of the Indian Navy. And we should consider the Vedic uh, uh, maritime people as the ancestors of the Indian Navy. We are all basically part of the same great tradition. We should definitely uh, recognize the incredible role of uh, Rajendra Chola and the Cholas in, in continuing India's great maritime tradition. So yes, they, they definitely should be remembered. But uh, the last great emperor of India who used naval warfare effectively and, to, and with great success was Shivaji Maharaj and that's why he is called the father of the Indian Navy. So I would not want to take the title away from him. We should call the Cholas, Rajendra Chola, etc. the grandfathers of India's Navy and we should try and remember all of our great naval traditions, all our military traditions. They are all equally important and one would not have been possible without the one that came before it. So they are all important and it is, it is good for us, it will be fruitful for us, for us to remember and recognize all of these great uh, events and chapters of our history. So with that, I will end the uh, these questions. Let me take some live questions. I'm sure you're asking me some. So let me take a look at your live questions now. Let me try and find some interesting questions. Balaji Subramaniam says, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, the Gothic kingdoms have origin in Gothia, in mid-lower mid Sweden. The Gethish kingdom have relations with the Goths. The Goths were used against Huns by, once by the Romans. It's a complicated and fraught history. Gothia in mid-lower Sweden also originated somewhere else. What, what evidence do we have that the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths originated in Gothia? Well, there is no evidence of that. These are, see, these are people who came around by migrations. Look at the Alans, for example. The Alans are the people who, who are the ancestors of the Spanish Iberian peoples. The Alans were once Iranian people, right? They were called Iranians or Aryans. Alans were Aryans, 
because the Iranians were the first peoples to officially call themselves of Aryan ethnicity and so on. So the Goths also are an ancient offshoot of the Masagate, the Scythian clan. And later on, they may have moved on to various parts of Europe. And today, the Eurocentric history will say that they originated in some region of Europe. But if you look at the entirety of history, the past 5,000 years, the story will tell you something else. It's the same thing like the uh, steppe origin of Indo-Iranian DNA. So it is said that there was a region in the Central Asian steppe from which uh, various invasions happened east and west. And that's how the uh, so-called Indo-Aryan peoples, Indo-European peoples were regions were populated. My question is, where did they come from before they reached the steppe? So you have to trace back the story to its real origin, right? To its real roots. I know it all starts back in Africa, 70,000 years ago or so. But after that, what happened? The story is only told in slices. We have to see the entirety of the story to get a proper understanding of what really happened. So yes, they may have had some connection with Gautia, possibly. And they have had a fraught relationship with the Romans. They sacked Rome. They also were used by the Romans at a later time or an earlier time. But they originated with the Scythian Masagate. Right. Okay, Vivek Sinha. What are some timeline gaps spanned across centuries present in Indian history, similar to the Bronze Age collapse, which historians are still baffled with? We we have a reasonably okay-ish understanding of the last 1,000 years of our history. There are still certain kingdoms and dynasties which are not known or are, are not written about, spoken about. But we have a reasonably good idea of the past 1,200 years or so of India's history. The Gupta age is not that well understood. The, the time of the Rashtrakutas, the Gurjar Pratihars, the, the Mahakshatrapas, etc. That time is not very well understood. There are some gaps in our understanding of that time. The Gupta age is also not entirely well understood. Then there is this gap when we don't know when our historians say that uh, King Vikramaditya was a mythical king. He did not even exist, which is absolute nonsense. So there are significant gaps as we go further back in time. Uh, there was a time when we did not know when King, when Emperor Kanishka was was uh, in power, when he was alive. Today we seem to have a reasonably good understanding of of his time period, and then we know that uh, the time period of the Buddha, about 500 BCE or thereabouts. We know about the Mauryan age, the Shunga age, but we we have absolutely no data from before the time of the Buddha and Mahavira. So the Buddha and Mahavira are supposed to be contemporaries of each other, more or less, similar time period. But what came before that? There's an enormous gap. It's like there was no Indian history at all before the Buddha. So that's how that's what you find in every official history of India, in any textbook. It all starts with the Buddha, then the Mauryas, etc. And it's like there was nothing before the Buddha at all. There was no history in India before the Buddha. But we know there was an enormous amount of history in India before the Buddha. We know it from archaeology. This entire Saptasindhu region, the Harappan, the Saraswati, Indus, river basins. There is so much there which clearly predates the Buddha by a great deal. 
and the history of Varanasi and other places also is very ancient. Patliputra also seems to be a very ancient city, present-day Patna. So we know absolutely nothing about what happened before the Buddha. We have archaeological evidence that, that a great deal of things, that a great amount of history is unknown to us. But we don't know the names of those cities. We don't know the names of the kings and people who lived there, who ruled there. We don't know the names of the great people who did great deeds there. And yet we have this very ancient history from the Vedas and the great epics. So there are enormous gaps in the timeline of Indian history. There are partial gaps between between the time of the Buddha and about 1000 years ago, many partial gaps. But the real yawning chasm is the time before the Buddha. And that's where our historians have fallen flat. They have not bothered to try and piece together the timeline of our history before that. And the truth is that our our ancient literature does talk about entire lineages of kings that came much before the Buddha and all. So it is, I think it would be very uh, worthwhile to take that very seriously. These are ancient records. These are not myths. And try and piece together the the, the timeline from various records and try and correlate that with various archaeological findings whether we can find some one-to-one correspondence. And then we can start piecing together our history. So the answer is there are many gaps, many enormous gaps. Okay, let me take a look at some more questions. So Divyang asks, uh, what is the best known chronology of Indian literature? Ramayana is older than Mahabharat, Ved, Upanishad, Puran, etc. So the Vedas are the oldest literature. Uh, the Vedas are clearly the oldest literature. The Samhitas, etc. Are, are texts that are attached to the Vedas. The Puranas are... Uh, so the Vedas are known as Shruti, I think. The Shruti literature, which is... Uh, taken as canonical literature, literature whose uh, validity is unquestioned. And then you had Puras which are which are Smriti, I think Smriti literature or secondary literature or derived literature. And then there are commentaries like Upanishads, etc. I am not entirely 100% clear about the entirety of this because it's very complicated. So maybe I can check it out again and revisit this question the next time. We know the Ramayana is definitely older than the Mahabharata. So we had the Vedas written at a very, very ancient time, at the very beginning of, you could say, Indian civilization. Then you had the Ramayana. Then you had the Mahabharata and uh, and so on. So you had late Vedic texts. You had early Vedic texts. You have four Vedas, etc. And then you had texts that are still Vedic, but that that post-date the, the four Vedas also. So it's an extremely complex situation. There there are tens of thousands of very valuable texts. So I think I I need to maybe make a separate video about this and explain all this in detail. Because if if I give you some answers right now, I may end up misplacing something somewhere, you know. So I think I'll make a separate video about this and explain this in detail. So I'll put that on my to-do list. But that is the overall chronology of the major components of India's literature. So that's a good question. Thank you for that.
who was Samiramis? Samir, that was a queen of uh, somewhere in uh, in Mesopotamia, at least three thousand years before today. And it is said that she had some. Uh, she she had some. She entered into a conflict with an Indian king as well. I am not entirely conversant with that story. It's a minor story in. Uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, but uh, if you want, I can look it up. I don't know about the 12, 20 horses. I think she is mentioned in biblical literature as well. And maybe she was uh, possibly the first female monarch of that region. It's an interesting story. I don't remember everything right now. So I will look it up and I'll get back to you about that. That's a very interesting question, actually. So let me get back to you the next time and answer this question. So, Shirish, I have answered this question before as well. We don't have absolute evidence of whether they were Indians or not. It, there is circumstantial evidence that seems to show some parallels in culture and uh, other things between India and the ancient Americas, but we don't have any actual hard evidence as of today. So maybe in the future we may find something, but as of today we, we have to say we don't know. <clears throat> this is by Siddhan Singh. Hello, sir. Uh, any history of slavery and harems in Indian subcontinent under Hindu kings? I can answer in one word. No. No slavery, no harems. Indian kings did have multiple wives. Polygamy was accepted in Hinduism. So was polyandry, FYI. There was no slavery whatsoever. Multiple foreign sources have attested the fact that Indians did not ever keep slaves. So today, the Marxist historians try to conflate the word Dasa with the term slave. Dasa was not slave. Dasa was a, originally an ethnic group. Later, it was this term became uh, synonymous with the position of a servant. A servant is not a slave. A servant is somebody who serves. Who serves. Even the prime minister is a public servant. Every government official is a servant of the public. So dasa essentially means servants. So that is the term they have tried to conflate with slavery, which is completely, completely wrong. So in short, the answer is there was no slavery in India and there were never any harems. Multiple marriages, multiple wives were indeed kept by many Indian kings, which is not the same as a harem. A harem is a confined zoo of the female species, which are used for a certain perverse purpose. That is what was done in the Middle East and with certain cultures. It was never the case in India ever. Women had the highest of respect and dignity in Indian culture. So very good question, sir. And the answer is no and no. Okay, let me take two more questions because it's been already 90 minutes. Okay, let me take this one by Paras Negi. What is the age-old relation between India and China? There is even the mention of a region of China in Mahabharata. Okay, there is the mention of a region called China during the Mahabharata era. Now, how do we know that China of the Mahabharata time is China of today? China is an English word. The Chinese call themselves their country Zhongguo. Zhongguo. They don't say China. This term China is an English word. It's a it's a it's a 
it's an exonym. It's a name given to this country by foreigners. The same with that India is not an Indian word. We call ourselves either Bharat or Aryavart or Jambudweep. India is a foreign term. Similarly, China is a foreign term. Japan is a foreign term for Nippon or Nihon, etc. So the China people, the China tribe of the Mahabharat is a different tribe. There is no relationship between that and the Chinese. Chinese civilization is about two and a half or three thousand years old at the very most. The Mahabharata happened many thousands of years before that from the best evidence that we have. So they are not equally old, India and Chinese civilization. Chinese civilization is a very recent phenomenon. India's civilization is at least 10,000 years old at the very least. So there was no mention of China, Shongwo in the Mahabharata. There was the mention of a tribe called the China people, which had nothing to do with the Chinese, with, with the modern Chinese. So I hope that clarifies this, this question. I get a lot of this question. So thanks for asking it. One last question. Is it true that Maharaja Ranjit Singh's flag had Hindu goddess and Hanumanji as the symbol? If yes, then why are Sikhs nowadays so much averted by their Hindu ancestry? Let me answer the first part of the question. Yes, absolutely. Maharaja, Maharaja, Maharaja Ranjit Singh's flag was a saffron flag. It had uh, the goddess Durga and Hanumanji as well on the flag. That was the symbol. Mostly it was goddess Durga on the saffron flag. So that was the flag of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And Maharaja Ranjit Singh uh, forbade cow slaughter and every other Turkic practice that was offensive to Indian culture. And the ancient, uh, the, the Sikh gurus of old were basically Hindus. They considered themselves Hindus only. Even Guru Nanak has said this. Nowadays, why is Sikhism averting itself from Hinduism? Well, that's a question of politics. It's very recent politics. I will, I deal with history. Let the politics uh, be dealt with the politicians. That is a matter of recent history. Recent history is very well known to us. So I don't think I need to go into that. It's something that uh, needs to be addressed definitely. Sikhism is very much part of the Dharmic umbrella. It's always been. They are very much part of Indian civilization, Indian culture. They are the same people as us. So what's, what's happening nowadays is unfortunate. And I think it is, it is the duty of the government of India to address with, address these issues if they if they are willing to. But like you said, it is very much true that Maharaja Ranjit Singh, his flag had Goddess Durga on it, and I think some of his emblems also had Hanumanji on them. So that's the answer. All right, my friends, it's been a great session, ninety-five minutes. Thank you for all the wonderful questions. Uh, there are many more questions that I have. I am saving all your questions and I'll answer. I'll keep answering all of these. So we'll keep continue. We'll continue doing this. And uh, for today, it's the end of the session. So I will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Have a great night. Bye.